namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Namo sadantu suchedoye sanputoshe. The unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it, Within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Shri Voshangren, Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It is May 7th already. It's the Saturday night. We're here in Berkeley, California. We're looking into the Flower of Dharma Sutra, the Ten Grounds. And in front of you, you've got uh, a sutra text and uh, a chanting book, a song book, and... Later on, we're going to need the yellow book, the ceremony book, too, uh, so that we can practice a bit for tomorrow, because tomorrow is uh, Buddha's birthday celebration up at City of 10,000 Buddhas, and, and we're going to, uh, we always uh, honor that event, and I think many of the folks who are going up are probably already there, so it's going to be a, a, uh, a smaller gathering than usual here tonight, but that's a good thing. Um, please turn to the front cover of your text here. And we'll chant the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Oh, uh-huh. 
Uh, tomorrow is a big day for us. Uh, it's the equivalent of, of Christmas in that it's the day where we celebrate the, the birth of the Buddha. Um, we're going to end at nine tonight. We're going to uh, end half an hour early so that people who are going up tomorrow morning can get enough rest and uh, won't be sleeping while they're driving, including yours truly. So, so we'll finish at nine. Please turn in your sutra text to page 25, 24 and 25. We're down at the very bottom. The Chinese is the last line on the page, and the English is the last two lines. Yo 谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈欲众戒谈
they're obstructed by the thick forest of ignorance and cannot extricate themselves from within the three realms. I should pull them out. I should, I'm sorry, my mistake. I should pull them from the three existences forever and establish them in great nirvana that is free from obstruction. Okay. Let's look at the text first. It says, the Bodhisattva further makes following reflection. Uh, he or she, it's gender nonspecific, and it takes us into the mind of the Bodhisattva, this awakened being who is looking at the state of living beings. That would include us. He says, I'll just use the he because it's more convenient to use one instead of trying to say two every time. He says, all living beings, live in the prison of the world. Chu is to, to be placed there. In shi, world, lao, yu, jail. So it's analogy. In the, the world's jail, um, this is not to say civil prisons or, or correctional institutions. It means the world as prison. Live in the prison that the world is. And have many troubles. Ku is pain, suffering. Now is hassles, trials, tribulations, worries, miseries. That's where living beings are. There in the prison of the world, they experience many sufferings and troubles. Turn the page, please. Here's an interesting relationship that when you, you see the way it's built grammatically, you get the Buddha's intent. He says there's a causative here. Because they constantly embosom, hold, because they hold on to love and hate. Because living beings hang on to love and hate, that in itself, just by doing that, creates, gives birth to yo, worries, and fear. So this is um, psychologically very astute. Here we have the Buddha um, giving us uh, a formula for why we worry and fear. So, in other words, let's run that in reverse and say, if we want to know why we have yo bu, how come we experience worry and fear? It's because of always keeping in our hearts ai, zeng, love and hate. So, if we were able somehow to... Um, get beyond the duality of things we pursue and things that we run from, things we run towards and things that chase us. If we could, um, in the midst of that, notice that pattern and say, I do that a lot. I'm always looking at the world and going, hmm, that I want, but that I don't want. Let me get more of that, but I have to get away from this. 
if in the midst of that process we catch ourselves and say, this, is this what I'm supposed to do? Is this what I'm here to do? Is find myself running from pain and running towards pleasure. Um, is there more than that? Is there a place that sees that pressure and at the same time can say, what inside me stops that? Is there a way to live so that the, the wind of desire and the pressure of fear can go right through and I can remain unmoving. It's very hard to stop those winds, but in the midst of the wind, can I keep my balance? To be able to say that is to be take the first step towards freedom from that constant double bind. Pursuing pleasure, escaping pain. Just walk down the, the aisle of any drugstore and you see the, the analgesics and the sugars. Over here is the candy rack. Over there is the aspirin. And we go, it's just one or the other. And we seem to just kind of circle the drugstore going from the, the, avoiding the bitter and pursuing the sweet. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we sugarcoat the bitter just to we put the two together and in order to make the bitter seem sweeter we just put a coating of sugar over it to put the two experiences together so it gets really esoteric as we see how much our lives how much the marketplace is designed to trap us in that constant pursuit and make us pay for it. We'll pay for the sweet over and over and over and over and over again, and yet it's precisely because the sweet becomes bitter that we up the ante, we up the dose of the sweet. And if we finally got, if it was really sweet, and we got it and it satisfied, if the sweetness could be satisfied, we would buy our last one the last upgrade, but it's not recognizing that process that keeps shopping malls in business. So anyone who wakes up to that and says, no, I'm going to stay right here and say enough of the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure itself is suffering, be able to see that and say, no, I'm going to stay right here and everything that comes to me will come on its own because it's mine. And once I stand still and recognize the cause of the bitter, maybe it just becomes a lot less frightening to be able to put your roots down in the midst of those winds and not be blown by them is profoundly un-American. It's also uh, dangerous to the wheels of industry because you step out of the ranks of consumers as soon as you do that, and you become a threat to the economy. You could be uh, investigated simply by refusing to take part. But seriously, not, not to make light of it, it's actually um, a revolutionary act to establish yourself off the grid 
out of the rat race of consumption. Very difficult to do because so much of the culture is, uh, is geared on that. So um, once you do, you just kind of start tugging on the strings of the consumer mind and you realize that so much of that notion was created in the 20th century. The, I've talked before about um, the, the birth of advertising as an offshoot of Sigmund Freud's notions of desire. And the, uh, before advertising really got going in the 30s and 40s, the, the example, the best example is a shoe shop. When you needed shoes in all of history up until this last uh, century, you went to the cobblers and you got a pair of shoes. And when those pair of shoes, when that pair of shoes wore out, you'd go and get them repaired. And if you had younger brothers, you would pass them down when they were done. And they would, you'd get a new sole put on or you'd get the, the uppers repaired or the laces repaired. And those were your shoes. That was that. And when you, the advertising on the shoe shop said, on the advertising over the door, S-H-O-E-S. That was it. That was the entire PR budget was to get the sign painted once. Shoes. That was that. No more advertising. And the cobbler was the cobbler. And if that's the trade you could go into. There was no such thing as um, closets full of shoes or Air Jordans or blow-up shoes or shoes that had springs or shoes that lit up every time you stepped and blinked at you Things like that. There was shoes were shoes, and that was what they were for to protect your feet. So, from that humble beginning, was advertising born, and products became things to consume and discard. So that's a new idea. So here is the notion that pursuing love and hate is really profitable if we can get our heads above the water and realize how much we're manipulated by the pursuit of pleasure and the fear of pain, then once we see that, what goes away is yo-fu, worry and fear. Because we realize that when we identify what we actually need, it's not so much. And it's not, an, it's not all that difficult to, to obtain because you realize that the basics of what living beings need to survive haven't changed much. The Buddha defined uh, the basics for living beings as food and drink, clothing, medicine for when you're sick, and shelter. That was pretty much the essentials. And if there's a way to secure those and further share the ones that you find that work for, for you, that are useful, then life goes pretty well, and we can find a balance. Fear and worry go away. And instead of hoarding and always seeking more, we start to, to trade and start to provide for others. 
So it becomes satisfying and meaningful to share. Instead of pursuing more and better upgrades and, and enhanced sensation, and running from the fear of losing that. So this is profound psychology, and it's really tied into our current situation, no doubt, no doubt. So he says, they constantly cherish love and hate and thus create worry and fear. Furthermore, says, bound by the heavy fetters of greed and desire, they're obstructed by the thick forest of ignorance. They can't extricate themselves from within the three realms. What are the three realms? The three realms are the Buddhist description of where we live. And he says there are three, and this is actually the, um, you could say, Buddhist astronomy or Buddhist cosmology, description of the universe. We're in what's called the realm of desire. Gods live in what's called the realm of form. And there's another realm that is also a, a deva's realm, called the formless realm. Desire, form, and formless. And the, um, there are pictures in the sutras of the descriptions of pictures of, of the sketches of how the universe is made. And we only see to the desire realm. It's uh, the, the form in the formless realm. We have to depend on the vision described by other by, by sages and by people who had their eyes open beyond this realm. But the desire realm is made up of the six-spoked path of rebirth, like the wheel of existence, and the heavens that, that include that. So they are the hell's realm, the realm of ghosts, and the realm of animals. And of those three, we see the realm of animals. Some people see ghosts, but it's not a constant vision. So, hells, ghosts, and animals. Then, there are three more, called the realm of asuras, or titans, the realm of humans, and the realm of devas, gods. But not the entire realm of gods. So that's the the desire realm. We're in that human realm now, and... That's one of the, the six. It's certainly just one of the six. And Master Shrenhua, as he was introducing this, this description of the universe to us, said that uh, it's very much like, um, like an airplane terminal where you have Delta over here and here's Southwest and here's American and here's Alaska and, and uh, United and all these different airlines. And each airline is going in all directions. So from one terminal, we can get on a plane that goes to Seattle and one plane that goes to Miami and one plane that goes to Detroit and one plane that goes to Dallas. And this is all domestic. Then you go to the international terminal and you go all over the world. The human realm, Master Shrenhua said, is just like that. It's a, it's a terminal it's a depot or a station where flights go in all directions. And he went on to say, we're always doing it. We're always on one plane or another heading out. And it's uh, our lives pass in this uh, constant landing, taking off, landing, taking off, going 
not only within the human realm to other moms, other wombs, but also into other existences. So he described uh, the six-spoked wheel, the the turning wheel of rebirth. I'm going to sneeze here. The turning wheel of rebirth as um, a place where we're always traveling. (coughs) Excuse me. That it's uh, not guaranteed at all that we'll be humans in a future life. We could ascend. We could go to become gods. And as, as you often uh, hear in the sutras, that's not always a good thing. Becoming a god is not the, not the goal, which it makes it different from religions that sketch in God and the heavens as the highest place. So that's the three realms. Um, it says, uh, once we're in those three realms, it's really hard to leave. It's really hard to get out. But, but, here's the interesting, um, complex, subtle way the Buddha described it. He said, um, the three realms, desire, form, and formless. Well, I, actually, I, I jumped out of that description too quickly, didn't I? I gave you the desire realm, but the, the form realm starts um, once you leave the desire realm, and yet it's still in the heavens. So the intersection between the desire realm and the form realm happens in the heavens. Um, there are six heavens still in the desire realm. That is to say, desire isn't over. And the way the Buddha um, described that is he said, you can be a god and still have wives, still have children, still have grandparents, um, still be bound by desire, and you can leave the heavens. The problem with being reborn as a god is that you're still mortal. Your karma in bodies is not over. And as the heavens ascend, the karma um, gets lighter and more refined, but it doesn't go away. The desires get lighter and more refined, but they don't go away. And so you think, "Mm, where in Western descriptions of the world do we hear about God's falling? And pretty quickly, you think about Wagner's operas, right? Wagner has, gives us operas where the gods fall. Um, Greek mythology talks about incessant struggles between the gods and the titans. And the ancient stories that are not so ancient, if you take human history as this blip in one blink in the lifespan of the universe, then within human history, we have lots of stories about interaction between gods and humans that involves rising, falling, disasters, scandals, horrific behavior on the part of the gods, constant struggle with the titans, and interaction between humans and gods. So we don't have to look very far at all to discover that our human history is rich in stories about how gods and humans 
behave. It's a very fluid cycle. You, the gods can fall, the humans can rise. So there is the form realm. And in the form realm, the gods have longer lifespans. They, they have nicer bodies, bigger bodies, better food, better clothes, better scenery, better environments, better vehicles, all kinds of creature comforts in the heavens that are better than the human realm, but only a bit. It's like the cars have longer warranties, longer between service and celestial vehicles, but they still crash, put out black smoke, go down. And the, uh, one of the interesting things about the difference between the, the desire realm and the form realm, as the Buddha described it, was what do the gods do in the form realm? They're called Brahma gods, Fan Tian gods from the Brahma realm, Brahma in this case meaning pure, that's another name for the form realm. What the gods in the form realm mostly do is meditate. They're in meditation all day long. The gods in the form realm are sitting there. They're in Chan Samadhi, Dhyana Samadhi. They're in a state of concentration and purity and stillness, and they don't leave it because it's really nice. That state is way better than anything that they experienced while in the desire realm. So there are said to be 28 levels in the form realm where gods come and go, and you go up and down in that realm. They all have different names, and if anybody's curious, I'd be happy to provide you with uh, the names and the information about what it's the whole study of the heavens. In fact, if anybody is uh, entering Dharma Realm Buddhist University and is looking for a good thesis topic, um, I haven't read any consistent research on the heavens, and that's waiting to be done. Um, sketching out what's it like to be a god according to the Buddhist description. It's very uh, real, very concrete, not theoretical. So, when you leave the form realm and you're heading up to the formless realm, what happens? Again, the changes take place in lifespan, body, and environment. The world you live in, the body you inhabit, and the length, the health of that body is different. The bodies in the the formless realm, are so subtle and ethereal they don't exist. There's only consciousness. The bodies have been refined and refined and refined to the point where their what molecular cohesion is where the, the changes, the transformations happen. Can you imagine the body of a god who is only consciousness? How would you get to that place? Let's, let's think about that. People who meditate long enough today, I mean, anybody here, if you, first of all, um, it really helps to be a vegetarian, just in terms of what's in your, in your bloodstream, what your cells are made up of, just the less oil, gristle, fat, cholesterol, all those things that coagulate and cake, the less of those, the better. 
um, you want to have a shock, um, go, I don't know how you're going to do this, go watch somebody make ghee, G-H-E-E, right? Ghee, clarified butter, tihu in Chinese. Watch what happens when you clarify butter. Ghee is butter that's just been heated and clarified according to a gradual process. I'll give you the quick and greasy. What happens is the clarified butter rises and the sediment sinks. You would be shocked. I was shocked to see how much gunk there is in the best of butters. That when you boil it and heat it, it drops to the bottom. And what comes out is this dark, hard, not hard, but coagulated, stiff stuff. It's the dregs in butter, the solids. And what's left is ghee. It's refined, it's very delicate and subtle, but what's left is just from plain old butter. That's, that's all in your bloodstream. Mmm, yummy. And you think, wow, just take a knife and saw a chunk. <laughs> Swallow it down. How long will that be in your system? So, that's just cow's milk made to butter, clarified to ghee. Suppose you eat a good porterhouse steak. Mmm. Right? What's in your body? That's just there. And you got to get rid of it somehow. And what do you do? Does your body get rid of it? It doesn't. It just chokes off the blood vessels and gives you a heart attack or a brain aneurysm. Anyway, not to go there. Point is that if you meditate and really apply yourself, work hard, anybody can experience over time this experience of the body changing its composition. Sometimes, Master Hua would say, almost before every Chan retreat, he would say, now some of you will be sitting here, and you're going to experience your body getting very, 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 very small. body's going to get really tiny. And then he would say, pay no attention. Don't be confused by it. If it happens, that's good. If it doesn't happen, pay no attention. Then he would say, some of you are going to be sitting here and you're going to experience your body getting very, 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 very big, filling up the universe. He would say, pay no attention. If you have that experience, okay, don't worry about it. Some of you will be sitting here and your body is going to get really hot, he would say. So hot, you'll just be sweating. You want to just take off every layer of clothes that's not essential. He said, pay no attention. That can happen. It's just a state. It's an indication that you're getting some progress. Don't attach to it. Some of you will be sitting here. Your body's going to get so cold, you're going to cover up three blankets on top. Just You'll be shivering in there as you meditate. He said, pay no attention. That's just a state. He said, sometimes your body's going to feel like cotton, like every fiber is just this floating cloud. Pay no attention. That's just a state. Other times your body's going to feel like it's made of metal, just so solid and heavy, like it's never going to move, like it's made like a bell, you know, made like that. And say, pay no attention. That's just a state. And we're going, wow, 
neat, I can't wait, you know, and he would say, don't get excited about this. I said, some of you will be sitting there. So he said, I, I don't mean to tease you. I'm just telling you to get ready when you meditate, when the time is right. If you are working hard, your body will begin to change. Why? He'd say, because it's an interaction of your kung fu with the form skanda. What is the form skanda? The form skanda is your body. Su is the name of form realm, the same realm that we're talking about, the second of the three realms. So, Trifa would say, right, this kind of stuff can happen. Don't worry about it, but I'm telling you, so if it should happen, you won't freak out, he would say. You'll be able to keep working hard. None of those states are real, he would say. Because why? The body you're meditating with is not real either. It's temporary, it's moving on. We experience our bodies as really solid. Medical science does not. When you start, when you use advanced microscopes to look at a blood cell, you realize that it's made up of earth, air, fire, and water. It's deeper still. It's a buzzing assemblage of electrons. You go deeper into that, you realize that it's just energy bound together by science is looking for names, the things that bond atoms together. So he, this is, we call it tendencies or quarks, things like that. What, in fact, is going on? He said, karma. Karma is the glue that holds us together into a male body, into a female body, into a healthy body, into a sick body, into a dead body. And we're all looking at the same thing, which is called the form skanda. He'd say, this is very coarse meditation. When your meditation gets really refined, you get to the second skanda, the feeling skanda, and you realize that fear, joy, grief, hatred, happiness, all of these emotions, as well as sensations, cold and heat, etc., are all temporary connections of the second layer of what makes you a human. It's still all bound with karma. Don't get attached to it. It's a temporary state. It's moving through. Furthermore, right, and he would take us through forms, feelings, thoughts, processes, consciousness, all five skandhas. And he would say, once you get to a place where your Gung Fu, your meditative skill, your ability to concentrate starts to really focus. What happens is the body is the first thing that shows its impermanence, its transient nature. It's all just the work of meditation. Don't get excited. Don't, don't be proud. Don't be frightened. This is closer to the truth than you've ever been before. Can you take it? Can you stand it? He would say. And the answer in many cases is, no, this is way too weird. Right? Medical science doesn't know about this. Why, you know, why should I know about this? You say, well, then here's this, just take this as an advanced medical text. Because that's really what the Buddha was about. He was giving us 
the true insight into bodies and minds. So, what are the, the jail cell bars of the world made of? What are the bars on the cells of the jail of the world that keep us in prison? Ignorance. Precisely, ignorance. Here it's called the heavy fetters of greed and desire, the thick forest of ignorance. How come we can't get out? It's because we haven't known the map. Further, we haven't tried long enough to walk the road. But here's the map. And the Buddha is saying, please do. I spent six years in the woods doing that. Everyone can. Here's how, he would say. So how neat to have the Buddha's big discovery is that third of the Four Noble Truths, which is suffering can end. That third noble truth is the real contribution. I mean, they all are. But this is essentially the first noble truth, this, this part of the text where he's saying, furthermore, look at living beings, good grief. That's the first noble truth. And here he's describing the second noble truth, what it is that creates that discomfort. But the third noble truth is to say, you know what, there's a way out. There's a way out. It can end. And the fourth noble truth is where he says, I should pull them from those three existences forever and establish them in Maha Nirvana, Great Nirvana, where there's no more... The three realms are over for you. You're beyond desire, form, and formless. You're out of the realm of the gods because why? You're no longer mortal. When you get to nirvana, you're not mortal. You're beyond birth and death. Birth and death has ended. You're not immortal. You're beyond duality entirely because you found the source. And early tonight, I said um, it's really subtle because why? The Buddha, on one hand, is saying the heavens are still part of the sanjia and the sanyo. Notice in the Chinese it says, yu sanjia ne. Um, they can't extricate themselves from the three realms. Then later on he says, yongli sanyo. Pull them from the three existences forever. The sanjia and the sanyo, the three realms, the three existences, are basically the same. The Buddha is saying that whether we're humans or gods, we're still coming back around. We're still on that merry-go-round, that treadmill of birth and rebirth, but it can end. Now, here's, you have to say all this, and that's why this description is really kind of uh, poignant. Within the Buddha's disciples, there are people who say, the three realms are a prison. I'm getting out. And certainly the Buddha would say, good indeed, good indeed. But then there are people who say, not only am I getting out, but I'm coming back and I've got the key to the cell door. 
and I'm going to stay in prison until everybody leaves. And the Buddha would say, good indeed, good indeed. So he warned, he didn't warn, he described clearly that people whose vision only includes saving themselves um, are people with clear vision, but they're not seeing the deeper connection. This particular text is about bodhisattvas who say the triple realm is where I've come to practice dharma. Because why? If I get out, I still have a deeper identity, which is with all beings. And I won't have a single good night's sleep knowing that everybody else is still struggling in the dark, bumping into the furniture, and live in a burning house and can't even smell the flames. Don't fear the danger. So the Bodhisattva says, I'm going to stay. I'm going to find a way to wake everybody up so we can all get out together. That's the highest expression of this teaching. So here you are saying, wow, living beings are broken. They're dysfunctional. Furthermore, I'm going to find a way to get them all out, to heal the breaking, to make it work again, make it function, and we'll all wake up together. What a beautiful, inspiring, altruistic expression of compassion. I want them to live in Mahanirvana where there's no obstruction where they see both under the water clearly, but also they've got their eyes out of the water and they're seeing the horizon beyond. Okay, good enough. Let's continue here. He further makes the following reflection. All living beings attached to a view of self. They hide inside the cave dwelling of the skandhas and never think to escape. They rely upon the assemblage of the six places to start the four kinds of inverted actions. The poisonous snakes of the four elements attack them. The vengeful thieves of the five skandhas harm them to death. They undergo limitless suffering. I should set them in the supreme place of non-attachment, that is, in unsurpassed nirvana, where all obstructions are destroyed. Okay, this is the ninth, this is number nine out of ten of these reflections. And wow. Um, it's, a, it's a cause of compassion. So, with that in mind, it's, you, can, you can bear it. 
week after week now, we've been hearing the Buddha um, if he was a doctor, he'd be giving uh, a terminal diagnosis. The Buddha is saying uh, living beings are sick, mortally sick. They're about to die in horrible ways. And he's talking about us. He's saying this is how, he says, life is going to end, not just once, but over and over again. And it's going to end painfully. And if he stopped there, then this would just be morbid. It would be full of grief and not very interesting. But it's that last resolution that makes it um, worth reading, that makes it inspiring, where personally, he says, I'm going to do something about it. The, the voice in these reflections is a... Um, a superhero's voice. This is really Batman and Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, all wrapped up in one, saying, even though the humans are some of the worst ones, but at least they can they have a human body that's able to meditate. Um, even though those humans perpetrate endless cruelty on each other and destroy, I'm still going to find a way to communicate to them the joy of simply sharing. Just not fighting for stuff, but using enough and passing the rest on. Not hoarding and accumulating beyond what you could ever possibly use. I'm going to find a way to make sense of that for living beings. Um, for the humans. Then for the animals, I'll find a way to teach them. And for the ghosts, I'll find a way to teach them. And for the devas, I'll find a way to wake them up, which is not easy because it's so nice there. I'll teach them all how to meditate and give them the flavor and encourage them to do it. And I'm going to teach the arhats not to be attached to individual purity. And I'm going to give the bodhisattvas gasoline so they don't get tired and burned out. And bit by bit, all beings are going to find their way to a place where there's no more suffering. That's heroic. And every one of these paragraphs winds up with that kind of cheer, that kind of pep talk. It's um, When you hear it the way it is, it's really hard to get depressed. It's impossible to consider suicide. And it gives you tremendous gasoline to face the, the kind of pain that we experience and, and emotional confusion and discouragement that, that comes on a daily basis. Um, let's look at what it says and see. This is number nine out of ten. All living beings are attached to me. They're attached to self. We are. We're, we're come with a self intact. In the um, analogy, cave dwelling of the, sang, of the skandhas, the form, feelings, thoughts, processes, consciousness that I described, he describes as a cave. Um, I had an experience in a cave over the, the winter holidays that 
in, in Australia that was profound. Caves are very quiet places. I hadn't realized what it's like to surround yourself with earth, dirt, and rock. What a feeling of stability. This was a nice cave. It was big enough that it wasn't claustrophobic. But I'd never experienced that surround silence and the, the, the sense of being uh, completely enclosed by that one element of earth, the, the solidity of earth. It was, it was a very different sense reading. My, I found my senses, like when you eat very bland food, your tongue is looking for the sugar and the salt and the spice. When I was in this cave, my skin was looking for wind. I was going out looking for wind and warmth. When we're out outdoors, you're always aware of where the sun is. Even on a cloudy day, you're kind of, yeah, that's, the sun is here. But underground, no chance. So it's different from being in a house. No windows, no doors. So anyway, caves enclose you. You're surrounded in a cave. And here the Buddha says, skandhas are just like that. These, the body, the feelings, our thoughts, the deeper thoughts and processes and consciousness close us in. Yet we attach in the midst of that to a self that is those things and something else. The self also assumes the soul. Whatever you call that invisible thing inside, that's part of our construct of me. Further, we give it a mind. We materialize that me and with stuff and call it mine. And we don't seek to truly to leave it. We don't even think to get out of that for a minute. We haven't maybe assumed that there's any alternative to just being stuck in this body and mind. Furthermore, yu liu chu kong ju qi si dian dao hang. We count on, we depend upon the, look at this, the kong ju, sometimes translated as empty village, the empty village of the six places, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Those senses, the sense faculties. And with that, the um, assemblage, the empty village, could, you, could translate that, the abandoned village of the six senses, we qi, start, we create, we lift up, we do the four kinds of inverted actions. The four kinds of inverted actions basically are killing, stealing, lust, and lying. Four things that harm self and others. We're attacked by four poisonous snakes. What are they? Earth, air, fire, water. Four elements are like snakes, says the Buddha, because they're, while they're together and they're working while we're all young, they're, it's okay, but as soon as they leave us, they bite us and poison us as much as snakes do because we can't do without either one of them, without any of the earth, air, fire, and water that make our body up. Get a little too hot with a fever, we, it's as if we're bitten by a snake because we will die all the same. We're harmed by the four 
snakes, four huge poisonous snakes of the elements. Wu Yun, Gen Zhi, were harmed to death by the angry, what are they, vengeful thieves of the five skandhas. Here the Buddha is naming all the components of the self, of me. He says, they're not our friends. These are enemies. They're like thieves. They steal from us. The, what, what gets stolen? Wisdom, compassion, and virtue get stolen by the things that we assume are us and me. In fact, they're not. They're not our good friends. What we know is not necessarily conducive to wisdom, especially when it's wrong views. Show Wuliangku, as a result of all these things, this, the things that we do around ourselves, we experience boundless amounts of pain and grief. The only thing that you can say that's positive for the false self is it keeps psychotherapists in bread. Right? It provides a living for psychotherapists who try to help us out with therapy. So somebody benefits by the analysis of the self. To no great reward, the talking cure is kind of like the, you could describe it, there's a beautiful Chan Zen description of what psychotherapy does. It's like an ant running around on the skin of a watermelon. There's something sweet inside, very juicy, which is the watermelon inside, but that thick watermelon rind is very hard to get through, and the ant is just running back and forth in the surface. I think there's something sweet here, running back and forth. And mind you, it's in the right direction. It doesn't do to to diss psychotherapy too much because it's... uh, it's looking at the right thing, which is the mind. But uh, often, when you're done with therapy and analysis, you still feel like the, all the old habits are there. Any kind of prompting will set those embers to flame. I should cause them. Here's the turnaround. Here's the bodhisattva's compassion. I should cause them... He says, I should set them in the supreme place of no further attachments in unsurpassed nirvana where all obstructions are destroyed. So the Bodhisattva says, right, um, what's wrong with the, the, um, that construct of the self that we take as the basis of who we are? Um, nothing as long as we don't attach to it. As long as we see it as something constantly changing, something that's able to be influenced by externals, that's to be able to be teased out by desire, um, if we can see all that happening and let it go, at the same time we depend upon our good hearts, our kindness, our virtue, if we can do that, then no problem. Use the body and mind, to do good, to benefit others. That's making the best of the situation. Unfortunately, that's really hard to do. Um, 
because our karma is mixed, otherwise we wouldn't be here in this world. So he says, I want to place living beings in that place of, the supreme place of non-attachment, where they can get rid of all kinds of obstacles and reach unsurpassed nirvana. Okay, here is, pay attention to this one. Live in the supreme place of non-attachment. There was um, one day, who was it? Um, I guess it was a, was it a college professor who came in to Gold Mountain Monastery. And this was an interesting professor because he was a practitioner. He was a cultivator. And he, um, more than many, seemed to recognize Master Shenhua, saw who he had there for his interview. He came in to interview, and I had the opportunity to translate. And I remember the uh, professor was kind of there, and you could see that he was not content to simply ask standard academic questions or kind of push hands with with Master Shrinhua, he wanted to go for the gold. He wanted to get the real, have his own Chan experience. So he said, he said, Venerable Sir, what is the highest state? He said. And Shrinhua was sitting there and smiling in a very gentle voice said, no attachments. And the professor was like, he, he kind of, he heard it, but he didn't want to hear it. He wanted it to be something more. He wanted it to have more juice, you know. He wanted it to be unsurpassed, supreme, great Maha Bodhi or something, something grand. It's just no attachments. But this professor had enough good roots that he heard it despite himself. And he, it was kind of like he, he kind of rocked back and forth in his chair and he, he blinked. And then just gave up and heard it. He just like. And then Master Hua, watching his response, said, Not easy, is it? Yep, really not easy. And from that point on, their conversation got really good. And they, they talked for an hour after that. But it was so refreshing to see the professor set Master Hua up for a grand Chan answer. And the big setup, and when he got the real thing, which was so humble, no attachment, don't attach, he could let all that go because he knew he'd heard the real answer. How difficult to be not attached. What are we attached to? This paragraph shows it. Everything. We're attached to the body. We're attached to our minds. We're attached to what we know. We're attached to the elements in our body, and rightly so. Of course we are. Health is an attachment, keeping that perfect balance. It's a wisdom attachment to, to learn how to listen to our bodies and keep them balanced, not too much, not too little. But still, at the same time, if you want to understand the place of no further becoming, which is namaha nirvana, it's really hard to get to that place. So... The Bodhisattva says, I'm going to find a way. Ling is the verb. I'm going to make them, create for them, 
encourage them, model for them, teach by example how to stay in the supreme place where the things that come, you're not happy, the things that leave, you're not upset, that place of ultimate balance where wisdom transforms the self, where compassion vanishes attachment and ignorance, which is wushang niapan, supreme nirvana that puts an end to all obstructions whatsoever. So that's the bodhisattva's vow, and <clears throat> he or she ends every paragraph with this, this uh, pep talk. This is what I ought to do. And then follows it up by doing it, sticking around when it would be much wiser to much um, more normal to grab for all the gusto you can get for yourself and let living beings figure it all out. Tough. Um, I'm going to direct you to the yellow books in front of you. Do you all have them? No, you don't. They're right behind. Connie? Yeah, there we go. Uh, Angela, would you mind passing those out? Please turn, if you will, to... Page 165, page 165. Those of you joining us online, and get a count, Kenny, if you would. People joining us online won't have this, so you're all going to have to just listen. Listen. Um, Page 165 is the Buddha's birthday ceremony. For tomorrow. This is the birthday of the prince, Siddhartha. Get up slowly, wait till uh, you have to stand up. Your circulation has to come back. Advanced Chan masters stand up too fast and sprain their ankles. Happens all the time, so don't worry about it. Page 165, this is, uh, look at the praise of the Buddha jewel. What do we have? We're going to do it tomorrow. It goes, Tien Shang, Tien Praise of the Buddha, 
And um, there's a very, very, very long, on page 166, very long title. It's Namo Sopo Shujie, Sanyo Sanjie Dao Shi, Si Sheng Si Fu, Ren Tian Jiao Sheng, San Lei Hua Shen, Ban Shi Shi Jia Mo Ni Fu. That's a very, very long title of the Buddha. What we just chanted was the praise of the Buddha. And I'm going to direct you, if you would please, you also have this book in front of you, I trust. Page 12. Page 12. Most of you have got one. If you don't, they're coming your way. we just sang with the wooden fish and the bell was this, this tune, this song. In the heavens, uh, the translation in 165 is an older translation, but it's Tian Shang, Tian Sha Wu Ru Fo, which is, upon the earth, below the sky, the Buddha has no peer. Let's just celebrate ourselves, Buddha's birthday, uh, in advance tomorrow by singing the Praise the Buddha song here.
but he's away. He's neither come nor gone. I find him in each place of grace. He is the So good. Page 167 in the yellow book. Back to this one. Page 167. Um, how many people are going up tomorrow? Hands, please. Okay, a few of you. The rest of you will be celebrating here in the Bay Area. Good. Um, tomorrow up at CTTB, we'll, we'll be doing this uh, chant for sure as we bathe the Buddha. And bathing the Buddha is one of the things that you do on Buddha's birthday. And we're going to do this in Chinese, and it's, it's a song that you do once a year, and we, uh, I like to give people a heads up here so that when you get there, you'll feel like you know this particular tune. And I'm going to put my palms together, and if people would like to join me, you can. It goes like this. We'll do it three times through and just join in as you get there, right? Oh, 
中如来净法身，我今观于诸如来，Depending on how many people are there, it takes a long time to go through the whole line. Um, the city of ten thousand Buddhas has done pretty well. We have many Buddhas, no waiting. You know, we have set up like five or six different baby Buddhas sitting there like that, and you get to, to pick your platform. So many Buddhas, no waiting. Uh, still, you have to wait and recite that mantra a lot. So it's a very nice um, ceremony. Symbolically, you're bathing the Buddha's. Uh, your it's not that the Buddha's dirty and needs washing. It's not the idea. It's that symbolically we're ridding our own nature of greed, anger, illusion, pride, doubt, washing away all of the accumulated stains of an entire year of. Defilement, in preparation for this year's accumulation of defilement, it's an ongoing process where you bathe and and shower and start over. So, hopefully, year by year, we we、uh, get that flavor of what it's like temporarily to feel our Buddha nature is clean. So, it's a very nice, very nice ceremony, meaningful.、Um, so that's tomorrow's event and. Since it is also Mother's Day, that's an interesting、uh, combination of holidays. So I was going. I'll point you at a song, page sixty-six in your songbook. 
we need to finish by 9 tonight, so we're not going to do it. We'll save it for next week so we can uh, have a, a connection with Mother's Day with our moms for two weeks. This is uh, one of my songs where we can recall what it was like when mom did all the cooking, when dad did all the driving, when teachers did all the teaching, and when the earth gave without breaking. Now, many of us cook for ourselves. We drive ourselves. Many of us are teachers. And the earth shows every sign of breaking down. So this is a, this song is about saying thank you, and I'm just I'm teasing you because we're not going to do it tonight. But it's uh, um, the chorus goes, I can't pay, but I can start by being grateful. Thank you, Mom, for your love and care. Well, thank you, Mom and Dad. I didn't know how good I had it. Hey, I'm feeling glad for my mom and dad. We had uh, 300 sixth graders here just uh, this last week, believe it or not, from Piedmont Middle School. They come every year. And I've gotten, it's last four or five years I'm in the habit of singing this song. And I challenge them, and I say, all right, how many of you fixed your own breakfast this morning? And of their, they come in three groups of 100, and of the 100, you know, 20, how many of you are going to cook your own dinner tonight? Nobody, you know. Oh, I say, what if, what if? Dinner time came, and you're really hungry, and you came down to the kitchen, and it was padlocked. And there was a sign attached to the padlock that said, you owe me. Three meals a day for the last nine years. They're sixth graders, right? <laughs> and I figure that costs about $3,000. I'm not your maid. Pay up or no food. I say, is that going to happen? And they go, no way, man. Mom's cook, you know. I said, yeah, well, you assume mom's cook. But understand that that comes out of her concern and care for you and her love for you. Don't make any assumptions. Pay back. I can't pay $3,000. I can't pay $3. Right? Well, then what can you do? Can you be grateful? Yeah. Okay, start there. Oh, I get it. So that's, this song is very effective for sixth graders. So anyway, it's a way of saying, hey, I'm feeling glad for my mom and dad. And we who will be celebrating Mother's Day tomorrow, mm, it might be nice to... Uh, express some of that to mom. Whatever opportunity we have, calling her, taking her out for um, a meal or sending flowers or whatever that might be, or just simply one day without that sharp tongue, one day without letting her have it, you know, the way she deserves it, right? Right. Just pulling that back and uh, being kind to mom. Even saying thanks, that would be a good thing to do. So we'll sing that next week as a way of extending Mother's Day.
And right this minute, we can say thank you to ourselves for coming to the monastery tonight and giving our nature a chance to bathe in some wisdom. I certainly joined that one. I'm thrilled to be able to open these texts with everybody together. Um, And with that in mind, fertilize our Buddha nature with the rich, nutritious fertilizer of transference of merit. Send out that goodness to ourselves and to all living beings. However you would like to do it, let's do it together. It's on the the back page, Dedication of Merit, May Every Living Being. Please do make that wish. Come compassionate and love.